that a lot of you I don't know yet. So you're going to come up to me and you're going to say, hi, Tom, and I'm going to say, who are you? <laughs> so bear with us as we get to know more of you through uh, our fellowship times together in the church. My book was written, published rather, in 2020, and it is a reflection of my entire life passion, even before I knew the Lord as my Savior. Um, creation has always been a great mystery to me, um, and it's not easily explained through evolutionary uh, education. I used to, in high school, gather with young life youth to argue with them about evolution. I was a, a thoroughgoing evolutionist. And yet there was some yearning in my heart, there was some gap there that was missing, that there was a loneliness. I remember I have a cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes where Calvin is standing out under a starry sky one night and he's just standing there gazing and all of a sudden he screams, I'm significant. Sorry, I made you jump. And he continues standing there looking, and in a very small, whispered voice, he says, cried the dust speck. Cried the dust speck. And that's where man in the natural state is in his understanding of the universe. It's, it's vast, and of course our explorations of space have opened up this universe to the point where it's absolutely frightening when you stand and, and, and think that this all happened by chance, that we are on this planet going 18 miles a second through space in revolution year by year, and then we all face, of course, the prospect of death and what is life all about? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? That's the things I've struggled with deeply through my unsaved days, is that if I'm just a product of chance, and if, if there is no direction, if there is no one directing this great ship, then what's the purpose of it all? Uh, Moody Blues had a song years and years ago, I'm frightened for our children. And the life that we are living is in vain. And the sunshine we've been waiting for will turn to rain. So we, we can get a sense, and you'll find that in my book if you read it. Uh, the book is really a reflection of my story of coming to Christ and then uh, the great um, revelation it was that I fit that I belong, that, that Christianity embraces humanity, and it embraces all that we are as human beings, that there is nothing outside of the purview of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we hear that a lot from our pulpit here, and I appreciate that, brother, that there, there is no section of our life that that we can say Jesus doesn't have a hand in. 
that all things belong to him. And then I find that, that I fit and I relate to the creatures around me because that's what God designed it for. So we come this morning, and my goal is to uh, awaken in us the responsibility that we have as fellow creatures, but as lords of the earth, and the responsibility that we have to take care of the things that God has given us, and the horrible blight that man has created through destruction and through pollution and through mismanagement of God's earth. Now, we read in Psalms 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth belongs to the Lord and all of the fullness thereof. The following was posted on a tombstone on a beach in California. The ocean born, and then there's a hypothetical date given. The ocean died, A.D. 1979. The Lord gave, man has taken away. Cursed be the name of man. And then the Doors wrote a song. It's called Strange Days. And they said in that song, what have we done, what have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Ravaged and plundered and ripped her and bit her, stuck her with knives in the side of the dawn and tied her with fences and dragged her down. There was a, a movement that began with, I guess, with Earth Day, 1970. And I remember being a part of that as far as the recycling program was concerned. And so this awareness began to, to blossom with the, the 60s and 70s. Uh, of course, with the publication of Rachel Carson's uh, book and the, the ecology movement started at that moment. But the movement took a different course than what we would like to follow as believers in Christ. Because it ended up with earth worship. It ended up with, as Romans says, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. So we want to avoid creation worship but rather we want to understand what our job is, what has been given to us by a sovereign God, as far as the care and the stewardship of his earth. So we understand that the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but then in the book of Genesis, and you're all familiar with this, where God commissions man to care for the earth, that he blessed them in the Garden of Eden, and told them to basically manage the garden, to be stewards of what he had given them. Now, sin, you know, as we sang these songs, um, we realized in a deep way, I hope, 
what one act of disobedience would cost us. Just one sin has plunged us into darkness and misunderstanding and the ability to destroy rather than create and help. Now, there's several things that we're going to follow in the outline this morning. And the first thing is that God created the earth in all forms of nature. Psalm 104 is a tremendous psalm, by the way. The, almost the entire psalm is a, a worship song about all the operations of nature and the things that are going on in creation. What's amazing about that psalm to me is that we realize God's imminent relationship to his created order. That God is involved in all of the operations and all the systems that are in this universe right now operating. And it's amazing, isn't it? When we stop and think that we are immersed in a world that is being, being managed by God's power and his strength and his wisdom. And so as we look around, the, the psalmist looked around and he said, in wisdom thou hast made them all. This is Psalm 104, uh, 24 and 30. <clears throat> in wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea. Wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. When you look at documentary films, and I love to watch the ones regarding the ocean, and the things that are being opened now to us through exploration, you see this verse and you think, this is really true. That the ocean is filled with things innumerable. The, the abyss is always a wonder to me. The Marianas Trench and the depth of it. And that things exist down there that are so amazingly colorful, but they live in complete darkness hidden from our eyes until the light from these little subs they send down there open it up to us. And it's just absolutely amazing. And you watch these little blobs pumping through the waters. And you think, what, what makes that move? What purpose does it have? Why is it here? And it's just pumping through the darkness. Nothing sees it. It's not self-aware that we know of. It's not like us. We're always Christian navel gazers and we're taking our temperature and looking at ourselves and seeing how well we're doing spiritually. And, and that little thing is just existing, pumping through the darkness. And you look at it and you think, why did God create that thing? Well, it says that for thy pleasure they are and were created. God takes pleasure in those things. 
Now, the amazing thing is he sees all of that. Darkness doesn't prevent him from watching the blob swim. There's volcanic towers in the bottom of those trenches that are pumping out hot gases. And these, these little tiny shrimp-like things that thrive in the heat of that water. That would scald any of us. It would just instantly burn us. And these little almost transparent things are just swimming in it and just reveling in it. As it bubbles out of those towers, they're just having a great time. And you think, why did God create that? Well, he takes pleasure in it, that's why. You see, we've become so accustomed to living indoors. We're so attached to our television screens and our electronics. We are so separated from the natural world that we don't take pleasure in those things. They're kind of icky to us. I probably wouldn't get many hands raised here if I said, do you like snakes? I, from a child, collected snakes. Ringneck snakes, garter snakes, black snakes, were, they were all part of my cages. My mother would go out in the, in, uh, in the fall and, and things and dig worms for my snakes. That's, she was strange, too. She lived to 105. <laughs> but I uh, had cages of, of stuff. My, my wife remembers, and she doesn't like snakes at all. But when we were living down in D.C. when I was going to school, I caught a little decay snake, it's called. Any of you who know those kind of snakes know what decay snake is. It's very rare. Um, but I found one, and I put it in a little cage. It had little slits on the top. It was for creatures, it said. So I put it in there, and I said, it'll be all right. It won't get out. The slits are too small. Well, lo and behold, she yelled one day, Tom, come here. And I went into the kitchen where it was, I think, on the windowsill. And here it was. It was coming out through the cracks. And he was on his way out, so I let him go to keep peace and keep her settled down. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And it says he creates Things creepy, innumerable, both small and great. Now, check the end of this verse, please. Thou sendest forth thy spirit. They are created. Thou renewest the face of the earth. You know, God is still creating. Not anything new. There's no new species being called into existence like in the beginning but it's the Spirit of God that gives life. It's the Spirit of God that regenerates through natural processes, but it is still His hand that is creating these things. You and I were created in the womb. Psalm 139 says that He knit us. You spoke of this last week. He knit us in my mother's womb. 
But the hand of God has been upon us since the womb. Will be upon us until death. That our life is in his hand. And do you know what happens upon new birth? Recreation in a human heart removes the blinders of our understanding, takes away the darkness, and a new vista is open to us that we've never seen before. That's the wonder of salvation, isn't it? It's, it's as wonderful and, and marvelous as it is to be forgiven of all of our sins. It enables us to see what being human is all about. It restores to us our place in creation so that you and I have an understanding of why we're here, where we came from, and where we're going that the unsaved do not have. Well then, John Calvin in his Institutes refers to creation as this most glorious theater. I love the way they express themselves. This most glorious theater. I believe Jonathan Edwards referred to it as this grand cathedral. And that's what we live and move and have our being. Not only in the world, but the, Paul said that in his presence, we live and move and have our being. What a mystery life is, isn't it? What a profound thing it is this morning to be alive. To be able to see, taste. And when that's taking away from us, like in COVID, when we can't taste and smell anymore, I had to go through Thanksgiving with that dilemma. You know what it is to try to eat stuffing and turkey and gravy with no taste? It's like, it's like eating drywall paste. <laughs> oh, don't worry, I don't eat drywall paste, but it's kind of like, you know, it's, that's what I think about. It's like chewing on just nothing. In John 1, 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now you think of that. Without Jesus Christ, nothing could exist. Everything was made by him and for him. So then, the creatures of the earth belong to him. He's created them, he's with them, he owns them. Why should we abuse those things? What gives us the authority and right to just destroy things randomly because of profit, because of convenience? To randomly just destroy trees and not replant them, not replenish them. The Industrial Revolution was a wonderful thing as far as modernization. But there was a price to pay for that modernization. While, while, the, while, the, while the Industrial Revolution was going on, we had the evangelical movement also blossoming and growing. 
during the last 100 years. However, something has happened with evangelicalism. There's something called the deconstruction movement going on. And the deconstruction movement is something like this. Well, what Paul said in Corinthians was cultural. It doesn't mean that we have to do that today. That the only thing that counts is the words in red. The rest of the Bible, even the Genesis accounts of 1 through chapters 1 through 11, is really like a mythology. It's like Hebrew mythology. So this deconstruction movement is going on. But I think the most harmful thing that happened in evangelicalism with regard to environmental stewardship was that we began to compartmentalize our lives. Meaning that spirituality is confined to what we do in the church, to what we do on the mission field, to what we do in the Sunday school. But when we leave those realms, when I'm driving down the road in my truck or car, it doesn't matter if I throw something out the window that's trash. That this earth is going to burn up anyways. You know, the Lord's going to return, and it really doesn't matter because it's all going to burn anyways. How many have heard that? It's all going to go up in smoke. So we're careless with regard to what we put on our lawns, what we throw in our gardens. You know, we want to take care of the weeds, then we just nuke them. We get the most powerful chemical out there, and we just destroy everything, not thinking of the, the world that we can't see in the ground or in the stones that is absolutely essential to the health of any land. We continue to use our fields year after year after year, and we never give them a, a sabbatical. You know, the Bible, God's concern for his own creation was in that they used their land for six years, but in the seventh year, what did they do? They gave it a rest. Do you think that's important today, or doesn't it matter? Is that something that was just something there for the Israelites? No, I think that we are exhausting our farmlands through never giving our properties and our lands a rest. You say, well, that's kind of radical. No, it's really not. It's biblical. It's found there, and I think that we can prosper more by following God's views of things than we can through even science. Some science is, as Scripture says, falsely so-called. So, Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. What a verse. What a powerful verse of the centrality of Jesus Christ to his creation. All things by him consist. Secular scientists have called the order of the universe, the mechanical order of the universe, and how it all kind of sticks together. They're saying that it's, it's held together by 
some sort of cosmic glue. These are supposed to be educated men. Cosmic glue holds the universe together? This says Jesus Christ holds it together. That he spoke it into existence. And, and that, that word, as he commanded things into existence, the, if I, as I understand it, is the Hebrew tense there is something like in, in music, and I'm not a musician, so you can just slash me up if I get this wrong. But um, there is something called sustinato, where a note is held. Right? Am I right? And then what is the one where it's, it's struck and then left off? Staccato. Thank you. Staccato or sustinato? Was creation staccato or sustinato? I think that's Latin, and I'm not too good at pronouncing that stuff. It was created and continued to be upheld by his word. It was sustinato. It was, it, as he spoke it into existence, he continued to speak it and uphold it and held it together. And the mechanical aspect of the universe is absolutely amazing. Why we're not crashing into everything else out there. How could that possibly happen by chance? What is chance? Chance is nothing. It has no personhood. It has no being. So how could chance create something when it itself is nothing? We believe God created ex nihilo. Out of nothing, but God was there to create it. So we don't say that it came out of nothing. No, God was there and called it into existence. So God created the earth and all forms of nature. I know you know that, but as Peter said, though you know these things, I'm going to say this to call them to remembrance for you because you and I tend to forget things and, and we, we, we need to train ourselves not to compartmentalize our lives. That all of life, exception of sin, should be under the lordship of Jesus Christ should be under his control and should be a part of our consideration. Second thing is God maintains a relationship with all of his creation. Psalm 104 says things creeping innumerable in verse 25 and 27. These all wait upon thee that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. Creation depends upon God's maintenance. Now, consciously, probably not, but yet they do. Now, in Matthew 6, verse 26, we're all familiar with this. Jesus said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Is that just poetic language, or is it literal? 
I believe with all my heart it's literal. God feeds the most common bird on earth. I don't know anybody that really likes to see sparrows at their feeding. They want cardinals, and they want finches, and they want grosbeaks. At least I do. Sparrow shows up, and we just kind of turn away from it, yet God feeds that sparrow. Are, they, are you not much better than they? What a thing. And back to my reference to snakes. You're missing something if you are so odious to snakes that you don't observe them. And I'm not saying you have to get up close. But Solomon said in Proverbs that there were four things that were amazing to him and that he couldn't explain. You know what one of them was? A snake upon a rock and how it moves. If anybody has ever seen a black racer, it's amazing. It literally looks like they're flying across the ground. They are so fast and so amazingly um, fast, swift, that how did those things move that way with no legs? Isn't that amazing? They don't have any legs to run. I can understand the swiftness of a lizard. When you see a skink many times in the mountains on the rocks, I mean, they, they're just, the blue-tailed skink is just incredibly fast. But a snake has no legs. And yet it just is like a rocket across the ground. We need to observe those things. And if you want to do it on your televisions, on a documentary, fine, watch it. but that should capture our heart's attention and, and draw them to worship the one who made that thing. You see, that's the missing part of, of the evolutionary heart, that, that there's no one to turn to. No one has done this. It just happens. I always like to talk about symbiotic relationships to evolutionists. What came first, the clownfish or the anemone? Because they both need each other to exist. And if the clownfish was like every other fish in its evolutionary process, the minute it entered those tentacles, it would get zapped, boom, dead. How many, how many clownfish had to die before it became impervious to the poison put out in those tentacles? Or did the clownfish discover by chance that he wouldn't get zapped by going into the sea anemone, and they became friends, and that was happy ever after. How does that work? How does symbiotic relationships work in an evolutionary worldview? They don't. So God maintains this relationship. Um, Martin Luther said, no one can calculate God's care of animals in nature. I am sure God's expenditure just for sparrows comes more than the annual revenue of the king of France. <laughs> Luther said when they complained in one of the, I, I don't know if it was the Wartburg Castle or where one of the places he lived in, there were sparrows building inside the building. And he said, let them alone. He said, God, 
provides a place for sparrows to just let them roam. And they, <laughs> I don't know if we want sparrows building in our house. But um, that was the kind of heart that these, these reformers had. They saw God in everything. They understood something about creation that we have yet to learn and to improve on. So the third thing is God teaches human beings through nature. Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 says, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought? Whatever you look at, ask it. How do you operate? How do you function? And if you study long enough, it will tell you. I used to love to take, there's a little, there's a little animal in streams called the planaria. Anybody know what planaria, seen the planaria? Um, they're one of these that can basically renew itself. And you could take a planaria, it's a worm, it's kind of like a, a small worm, a flat worm actually is what it is. And you take a planaria and you can split its head down the middle with a scalpel or a sharp knife. It won't die, it just grows two heads. You can split the planaria in half and it will replenish the halves that you cut. Isn't that amazing? It's hard to find any other creature that would do that. But those are the things we need to ask. How did God make this thing? This is the basis for science, folks. Creation provides a solid knowledge basis for true science. Our, our faith fits the facts. It, it really dovetails with reality, with what is there, actually. We don't have to do dances around bushes to explain away how something came to be. Many times we have to say, well, I don't know, but I know the God who created it. And I know he doesn't make mistakes. And I know that there is something in that beast or in that worm or in that whatever it is that has something to say to me. Do you see how science comes out of that? Then you do research. And you find out the relationships that that thing may have to us. I think there's a lot of things out there in the world that we have not even touched on that is beneficial to us. We've just begun to understand the relationship of herbs and plants and their uses for our benefit. I mean, once we got over the, the hump of the stigma of, 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 uh, of cannabis, we all of a sudden find out that there's something in the plant that that besides the magic carpet ride that used to give to many people, 
there's something in there that's beneficial to pain relief. So, this is what we need to do, is ask these things. In Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, God hath showed it unto them. It's talking about the unsaved. As they look upon creation, there's something that reminds them that there is a God. He has placed eternity in their hearts. And it says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No man in eternity will be able to be standing before the throne of God and say to him, I didn't understand that. That beautiful sunset I saw, I didn't know it was about your glory. Oh, yes, you did, because I said it was clearly seen. Sunsets, sunrises, the beauty of lakes and ponds, the beauty of forests. We are literally immersed in God's glory. I remember standing one morning when I worked down at Fort Detrick and I was standing on the porch of the building I was guarding and there was a magnificent sunrise. I relate this in the book I wrote. Magnificent sunrise. And one of the employees was coming in the building and he was all about you know the business of the day. And, he, and I said, isn't that a glorious sun, sunrise? And he went, what? Uh, oh, yeah. He just kept going. Thinking, you don't even stand long enough to consider it. Whenever we see that, it's it's like the Lord wanting to show you something of Himself. But we're so busy, and we're so concerned about our stuff and the things that we're doing. To think if we're immersed in this beauty and this revelation of his glory and his power and his eternal Godhead, how often we fail to worship him. Oh, worship is for the church. See, worship is for what we do here with the songs. I mean, it is. But do you realize how small part this plays with regard Guard to worship in our true humanity. Who we really are. And when I see these things, God is calling me to his throne. How dare I just kind of, oh yeah, that's great. I'm off my throne. John Muir was a, a great early environmentalist, ecologist. West Coast. He was the one who founded the Sierra Club and also um, enacted laws for the beginning of state parks. And it began with Yosemite. And John Muir always said that he wanted to take people and baptize them with mountain theology. You read about him and he was really 
quite a man as far as his exploration and the things that he did. And I, I uh, read often Henry David Thoreau, and I know that as a worldly philosopher, he wasn't the greatest person. Um, but nonetheless, isn't it amazing that an ungodly, really a, a, a man who was a transcendentalist like Thoreau, could reflect in his heart the beauty of the natural world, could put it into writing, in poetry, and other things, the feelings that we all experience as human beings with regard to nature, that you and I as born-again saints have the connection with the creation and the creator that transcendentalists don't have. And that makes all of the difference in the world of how we view the universe. It should. The, the fourth thing is God ordained humans to be stewards over nature. Now this has to do with our responsibility that I spoke of. Every single one of us as human beings and as Christians have this responsibility because it's a creation mandate. It's a creation ordinance that has never been taken away. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now that gives us a stewardship as far as that God gave these things for our use. We can exercise dominion over the creation with regard to food. That's very clear in Acts 10 when God lets the sheep down from heaven. It's my favorite verse probably. And says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. That's a good mandate there. That everything on that sheep was clean. And it was to be used. So there is a place for hunting. There is a place for fishing. There is a place for cattle and sheep and other things to be raised for human sustenance. But that's not saying there's a justification for cruelty to animals. There has to be the balance between use and abuse. We, need, we should never abuse something simply because we can use it. It's never a justification. Deuteronomy 7.22, God told the nation of Israel, the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee little by little, that thou mayest not, thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. Notice that. There is proper wildlife management here. God doesn't want the brute creation to take over what we are to inhabit. There is to be animal control. Proverbs 12.10 says that a righteous man regardeth the life, is, life of his beast. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So a righteous man cares for his animals. And he doesn't abuse them. It's just that simple. Now we come to um, this point here that... Um, I'm going to skip number five 
Let me give you a verse out of chapter of, of, out of point five. God's commands when obeyed benefit both man and creation. Um, verse uh, Psalm one fifteen sixteen says, "The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath He given to the children of men." The earth He's given to the children of men. So that's our stewardship's responsibility. And it's never been, like I said, it's never been rescinded. God has never taken that back and said, okay, you're out from underneath this command. Even after Noah came off of the ark, this command was kind of reinstated. That go and replenish the earth. And the reason why all these animals were kept on the ark was to provide for you when you get off the ark. So, the <clears throat> point six is that the creation mourns under man's abuse. Isaiah 24, verses 4 through 6 say, The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. When we disobey God in his commands and ordinances, we defile the earth. There's the occasions where um, entire rivers have died because of the toxic material being dumped into them. Example would be Toms River in New Jersey. It was completely obliterated of all life because of the dumping of toxic material into it. The river literally turned orange. And the, the, those residents that lined the river in communities began to develop brain cancer. And they traced it back to the toxic chemicals going into the ground and into the drinking water. Do you know what the company's solution was to that? Put a pipeline 10 miles out into the ocean and dump it there. Like 10 miles of pipe is going to change the toxicity of the waste. And then what happened was the tides washed the chemicals from 10 miles out back to the beaches that people were swimming on. Not quite a solution, is it? Did you know that at one point the Thames River in England was so polluted, so bad, that the northern salmon could not spawn in it any longer. Where human waste and toxic waste from factories were being dumped in it at a rate where it was just destroying the oxygen of the river and the salmon could not survive in it. That has been changed, thankfully, over the years. There's been some improvements, of course, with different regulations that have come up um, to regulate some of these things. But there's still, you know, a long way to go. There's other things, and one can't drive up Interstate 81 without realizing there's a problem. Have you seen the sides of the road? Does it bother anyone? You come off of these exits, and it literally looks like a landfill. There's trash everywhere. Now, thankfully, we have things like Adopt-A-Road program. We have local cleanup things that uh, proposed power line that was supposed to go through several counties here uh, 
ancient York. That was recently defeated. They stopped them from putting in those power lines. So there's things that are going on that are good things. Good things in England I'm reading about now. Um, and I'll, I'll give you quickly uh, some, some groups and some organizations that you could maybe look up and, and tie into, hopefully, for more information and maybe participation. Adopt-the-road programs are great programs for churches to be involved in. Where we go out once a, twice a year, they require you to go out and take a, just a mile section of a road somewhere and clean it up. Like something maybe we would be interested in doing. So, Jeremiah 2.7 says, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. I gave you this and this is what you did to it. And Romans 8 says that the whole, we, we, we sang it just recently, that the whole creation, what does it do? Groans and travails together in pain until now. Why, did it, why is it groaning? It's waiting for the redemption that's coming. There's an expectation hardwired into the creation itself that there's an expectation coming of renewal. And I don't think we think much about this, but when we think about heaven, we no longer think about the earth, that we're going to go to heaven, and we're not going to be a part of this any longer. Did you realize that God is going to recreate the earth? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we ask? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we see in the book of Revelation in the final chapter where it says the new Jerusalem does what? It comes down to the earth. The earth is going to burn, but it's, that's kind of like the purging. And I can understand now why God needs to purge it because there's so much human waste and junk that we've filled the oceans with and filled the landfills with that it's going to take a complete conflagration to purify this thing. So here's the thing. We're not out to save the earth. That's too big of a, that's too big of a thing for us. How can I save the earth from volcanoes, from volcanic action? How can I save the earth from earthquakes, from all of the winds and things that come across our land? We can't save the earth but we're commissioned to protect it as we can in our sphere of influence. We're under a mandate to, to care for those things that are at our hand to care for. Waiting for, waiting for that final solution to be given. Revelation eleven eighteen it says, The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. There's going to be judgment upon those that have destroyed the earth. Now, this is not 
made up. This is not something that is pie in the sky. But that every time a species goes extinct, every time we kill a river, every time we destroy a form of life, and by the way, there's a lot of things on the list right now with regard to they're in trouble. Amphibians are in trouble. Reptiles even are in trouble. Thank God eagles have made a comeback. We see a lot of them around now. But nonetheless, there are other things now that are in trouble simply because we haven't done our responsibility. But every time something like this happens, we are defaulting on the stewardship that God has called us to manage. Believers are going to be held accountable with the rest of mankind for how well we manage the resources God gave us. It's going to be part of our responsibility and accountability before the Lord. So I want to read a poem to you. Before I make the conclusion here, George Pope Morris. The title of the poem is Woodman, Spare That Tree. Woodman, spare that tree. Touch not a single bough. In youth it sheltered me, and I'll protect it now. T'was my forefather's hand that placed it near his cot. There, woodman, let it stand. Thy axe shall harm it not. That old familiar tree, whose glory and renown are spread o'er land and sea. And wouldst thou hew it down? Woodman, forbear thy stroke. Cut not its earthbound ties. Oh, spare that aged oak now towering in the skies. When but an idle boy I sought its grateful shade, in all their gushing joy here too my sisters played. My mother kissed me here, my father pressed my hand. Forgive this foolish tear, but let that old oak stand. My heartstrings round thee cling, close as thy bark, old friend. Here shall the wild birds sing, and still thy branches bend. Old tree, the storm still brave, and woodman, leave the spot. While I've a hand to save, thy axe shall hurt it not. What I see in this poem is the connectivity of a heritage. My mother, my father, my sisters all were part of this tree. They were intimately connected. And that was the reason to protect them. We don't think of the natural world as a resource to pass on to our generations ahead of us, do we? And that's where we failed. That we're not preserving it just for our enjoyment. We're not preserving it just for our safety. But we're thinking about our children and our children's children. What are we leaving behind for them? So in conclusion, the scripture clearly states that God created, blessed, protected, and made a covenant with the earth and all creatures dwelling on it. <clears throat> While avoiding a romantic view of nature, 
that leads to creature worship and mysticism. We must assume our created position as stewards of his creation. It is our spiritual and therefore moral duty to exercise sound principles of stewardship over the earth. It is our, I'm sorry, I use the word uh, spiritual. It's our scriptural duty. Spiritual, same thing. And therefore, moral duty to exercise sound principles. And I really want to emphasize that it is a moral duty to be conscious of our responsibility and our stewardship before the Lord. What can you do this morning? to contribute to the responsibility, the great responsibility that we all have. And it might just be in your realm to pick up someone else's trash that blows in your yard. But at least pick it up. At least clean it up. There are groups like La Roca in England. There's the Christian Environmental Network right here in Pennsylvania. There is the National Arbor Day Foundation that has a mission of planting trees. There's all sorts of things that we can be involved in. And I don't want to encourage you to spread your resources so thin, uh, but do something. Do one thing to give back to the Lord what he's given us.